Hey guys, John Pollamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, January 8th, 2022, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a registered financial advisor. You don't really know me. You should not uh, just listen to what I say and run with it. You should do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so big news, obviously, the call it what you want, revolution, unrest, whatever in Kazakhstan. Why is this a big deal? Well, as we know, Kaz Adam Prom, which is based in Kazakhstan, produces 42% of the world's uranium. And so there's been a lot of speculation based on what has been happening there with the unrest. Supposedly, the fuel prices that started in the western part of the country uh, for LPG gas that's used extensively. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. You can read about it on your own. I don't know enough about Kazakhstan and the internal politics and the clan relationships. I do know the overall general history of the place. Um, let's suffice to say that it was a Soviet Republic. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was basically ran by a former Soviet type person. Uh, he recently gave up power to a hand selected person. This is a typical place where families and connected people run everything. And so I think there's been quite a bit of disillusionment. It's similar to what you see in like Ukraine, where you have oligarchs and people that are connected, or people in government basically steal most of the wealth, right? So if you're not plugged in, if you don't have a sponsor, if you're not part of uh, the group in group, you don't, uh, you don't necessarily get the benefits. And so I think this has been building for a long time, especially with the younger population, they see these old post Soviet or former Soviet leaders, uh, business as usual, and then, you know, just handing power to cronies, or hand selected people, and they just don't want to go along with this. And then you have a situation where a catalyst like these fuel price increases spark the unrest. So I will put an article from Pepe Escobar uh, on the soccer, Saker. Um, they do a lot of writing about Russia, internal politics in Russia, and Russian speaking republics, former republics, part of the uh, like Kazakhstan, Central Asia. Eastern Europe, that kind of thing. So I don't know enough about it. What I would say is that you have Kaz Adamprom coming out and saying in a press release on Bloomberg, sees high risk of disruptions on Kazakhstan unrest. So that's what we should focus on, right? Um, there's been a lot of speculation on Twitter. I don't get into it. I don't, who knows what's going to happen? And so saying, well, are the, you know, the Russians have troops in there now? Is, is Russia going to take over Kazakhstan? Is Russia going to control? Look, Russia kind of already controlled things. Ross Adam um, and Kazakhstan, Adam Prom and the government of Kazakhstan. Believe me, these people are all, you know, uh, working in the background. So uh, this was never a free market where Kaz Adam Prom was like, you know, not influenced by uh, Russia. So Anyway, uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but what we can say is that the, the um, 
type of mining that goes on there is not hard rock mining. It's in situ leaching, which basically means you're pumping the acid type uh, solution down into a well bore. You're dissolving the uranium bearing sandstone and then extracting it from another well bore down the line. And this requires a huge amount of sulfuric acid. Um, so if you get into a situation that you have you know, interruptions in supplies, interruptions in um, different things, their offices, production facilities. So far, they have not seen that, but they are seeing a, they are saying that they see a high risk of supply chain disruptions that could limit access to materials. So we don't know the extent of what, at the current time, what that means. So any kind of discussion around this at this point is speculation. I'm just reporting this to, um, get it on your radar screen. It's something to think about. It could very easily be a non-event and it could be, you know, based on what happens, you know, if we are in a situation where we're already in a supply demand deficit for uranium and anything like this exacerbates it or makes it worse in the short to mid midterm, then we could see a definite, um, definite turnaround in uranium pricing. So far, we haven't seen too big of a reaction. Uh, but like I said, it's going to take time for this to play out to see exactly what happens. I mean, the current president of Kazakhstan has basically said shoot on site for people that are um, uh, out there. So th th I'm not sure it's gonna be a full blown revolution. I don't know how what's going to be the outcome. I don't know if there are human rights violations, if the world community steps up and puts sanctions, there's all kinds of things that could happen, right? Um, it, it, it's, we don't know if this is sponsored by MI6 and the CIA. We don't know what's going on. There's another color revolution to take Russia's focus off Ukraine. There's all kinds of theories running around. I, I really don't want to get into it because I don't know enough about it. And I don't just like, you know, well, this, what if this happens? What if that happens? We just need to see how the situation develops and understand that there's some risks here to the upside, in my view for the uranium price. Obviously, if you're a stockholder in Kaz Prom, this could be bad. Uh, but eventually, you know, you have to think that, you know, there's been speculation, well, the Russians could take over, or the state could take it back over. I mean, it's just not worth thinking about. Uh, what you could do is just sell. This is a sell on the on this bad news and just wait for it to all play out if you own Kaz Prom. Um, I own it as part of a a constituent of an ETF. Obviously, it's a big component of the ETF. But this is a, another reason why guys like Cuppy and those guys and other like some folks just buy the physical uranium, then you're not dealing with these type of risks, right? You understand the thesis of the supply demand thesis, uh, biasing towards the upside over time, and then you don't have this type of situation. But uh, like I said, we don't know enough yet. We're just going to wait and see what happens. And if you want to get on and find it entertaining to go on FinTwit and engage all the possible scenarios, you know, feel free to do that. I'm not going to do that at this point. It's not, I don't think, productive. So I wanted to bring this up. I think if you've been watching this channel for any length of time, you know how I occasionally talk about how overvalued the US stock market was. And right now, the, the NASDAQ composites basically being held up by a few stocks um, because they're so heavily weighted. But if you look at the underlying uh, stocks in the um, composite, 
I mean, we have a lot of these previous high flyers that were selling at, you know, 50 times sales that these things have crashed. I mean, some of them are down 50% or more. And so what I'm showing you here, what, what I'm trying to tell you is there's a massive rotation. We talked about this. We thought that this would happen. Um, it goes back to the, what I've preached for a long time as one of my um, components of being successful in these markets is to sell over valuation and buy under valuation. And I was not participating in these growth stocks, okay? They were, I don't buy overvaluation, I buy undervaluation. Um, and now we're seeing this violent rotation that's been going on. And what I think is interesting is to go back to the previous internet bubble and you see almost an exact replay. History repeats, but not exactly, but you see the same thing, right? We had the situation there where energy was undervalued. It was at a low point, I remember, articles about the end of oil. Oil was at $10 a barrel. This is when I had my biggest success with uh, hurricane hydrocarbons, uh, ironically being a Kazakhstan-based uh, oil field in eastern Kazakhstan that was bought by the Chinese National Oil Company. It was a multi-multi-bagger. But anyways, um, you see the same thing. You had overvalued tech stocks, undervalued oil and gas or energy, and it reversed itself. And you had, you know, a big move. We're seeing the exact same thing here. We're breaking through now. Um, this thing's going to accelerate to the downside. Uh, we have rates rising uh, because of the inflationary bias. Um, and this is not good for many reasons why uh, for these growth stocks that literally have no earnings. I mean, you have large mining companies like Glencore, Rio Tinto, BHP, they're paying like huge dividends, right? I mean, close to almost double digit yields in some cases. You can buy the RSX, which is the Russian large cap index, and that's paying a 9% dividend. It has all your big major oil companies and mining uh, companies in Russia. So, I mean, you're seeing, you know, in a, in a period where you have inflation and you don't really have any earnings or cash flow being returned from these high flyers, you know, the, the, you're seeing this violent rotation. This is something that we said last year at the end of the year that we thought would happen, right? It was a thesis of ours that people would recognize this and we would see money come into the energy complex because of the returns, because of the dividends, because of the, the uh, share buybacks. And uh, so we're seeing this. Uh, so this is basically, you know, your NASDAQ composite uh, as it's compared to the S&P energy sector index. So when it's going up like this, um, your NASDAQ stocks are outperforming energy. Uh, and when it's going down like this, they're underperforming. That means energy is relatively outperforming. You could reverse these um, in, the, this is done in stock charts. This is how you do these comparisons. Uh, but you could see what happens, right? Uh, this is, <laughs> uh, let me move this. I mean, if you look at the previous um, situation, It only, you know, you go, it goes straight up like this in a bubble, and then it comes back down. This all happens in a space of, you know, 18 to 24 months. So, you know, 2022, I think, is going to be a very productive year for energy, and we have a long way to go if this is a uh, indication of what we're looking at. Again, things don't, aren't going to happen exactly like they did 20 years ago, but I would suggest to you that, uh, the trend is definitely the same. I was around when this happened. I, I was saying the same thing about internet stocks. We didn't have the 
same amount of social media back then. We just had Yahoo message boards, I remember. And you would uh, make a comment about, you know, why are you guys buying this stock that just doesn't have even any, forget about sales, it didn't have any sales. Many of the bubble stocks are being valued just on how many eyeballs were looking at the website. And that was garnering multi-billion dollar valuations. It was ridiculous, just like this has been ridiculous. And so these things eventually reverse. And it seems like that's the case. And I believe that we are positioned perfectly. We're sitting in the cuckoo bird seat. And uh, I think we're getting paid off. I know I am. My portfolio is performing very nicely. A lot of the energy stocks are consistently making 52 week highs. Um, so, and you see what's happening to continued deterioration in the uh, NASDAQ high flyers. At some point, uh, you know, it'll be profitable to buy them, but you know, these energy, you know, this outperformance, underperformance of the, of the growth stocks you know, was a long process where energy outperformed. We could be in a similar situation. So something to, uh, this is why we sell overvaluation and buy undervaluation. You know, we're never gonna get it dead nuts, the turn, we're never gonna get it right on the dot, but you can see the trend and then you position yourself. So, um, this is another thing I think is going to be another emerging theme for 2022 as time goes by. Uh, I think market participants are going to become more tuned in to this theme, which is that OPEC is not going to be able to meet uh, the call for increased supply. And I think that people were making assumptions that, I mean, even a month ago or two months ago, you had analysts saying, well, there's this risk that OPEC's just going to flood the market. You know, the IEA, who's never been right about anything ever, was suggesting that there was going to be oversupply of oil in the first quarter of 2022, current quarter. And so with the variant, the current variant uh, not being a big deal, eventually when this thing rolls over, which should be in the next, you know, four to six weeks, we should be definitely in a downtrend with these cases. And assuming we don't get any more uh, variants to throw a monkey wrench in it, I mean, uh, we're going to be in a situation where things are going to open up again, things are going to get relaxed like they did between Delta and this particular uh, variant. And I think you're going to see uh, uh, relaxation and economic growth. And um, the, the call on OPEC is not going to be able to be met by the OPEC members. So um, we're going to talk about some other things that are happening, increased production in other places, non-OPEC. But the bottom line is, as I've talked about it many times, as I talked about in the 2022 prediction, as I've talked about in the newsletter commentaries for the last year, there simply has not been enough investment. Um, and it's not something that will be able to be corrected in uh, you know six months or a year. If this is a multi-year situation. If you underinvest for multiple years or decade, um, you can't just fix it in a couple months. You couple this with the, you know, advanced Western countries, developed countries, if you will, um, wanting to put as many barriers to increased hydrocarbon production um, with stupid legislation and dumb policies, then I think the trend just gets exacerbated. So anyways, Let's see what this article, I'll put links to these articles where I got this information from uh, in the show notes. 
The increase in OPEC's oil output in December has again undershot the rise planned under a deal with allies, a Reuters survey found on Thursday, highlighting capacity constraints that are limiting supply as global demand recovers from the pandemic, something we've been talking about. Uh, we didn't come up with this idea. I mean, we have other people, you know, Josh Young's been on this from Bison Interests, other folks, Doomberg. Um, you know, we're not the smartest guys in the room. We just like to sit in the room with the smartest guys and listen to what they say. With output undershooting the planned increase, OPEC's compliance with its pledged cuts increased to 127% in December, the survey found from 120% a month earlier. So um, that means that they're not uh, producing enough or producing what they, uh, the quotas are allowing for. The biggest decline, 100,000 barrels a day, was in Libya, another country exempt from OPEC supply curbs, which on December 20th said it had declared force majeure on crude exports from two terminals. Nigeria had the second largest drop due to a force majeure on exports from the Forcados crude stream. So I don't know the particulars of each of these force majeure events. Obviously, a lot of times I've been involved in contracts where I've had a supplier not be able to meet their commitments. And a lot of times they'll just claim force majeure and then you have to end up arguing with them or going through a arbitration. But um, that's the first thing people, that's just because it, they, the supplier said it was force majeure doesn't mean it is. What I'm suggesting to you is they may be using that as a cover up. Oh, we had this temporary supply thing or this issue with the pipelines or the terminal facility turnaround or whatever. And that may be the facts, but it also may be just an excuse, right? Because they, they can't meet their commitment and they don't want to admit that. Um, if you study, if you read like the, <coughs> the book, um, excuse me, Twilight in the Desert by Matt Simmons, who wrote about how the Saudis and OPEC basically have, they do nothing but lie about reserves, production, that, that's just what they do. So uh, you really can't believe much. So you have to look at, you know, again, not look at what people say, but what they do, and they're not producing, you know, they're just leaving, where they're just leaving free money on the table, why would they do that? So again, uh, this chart, I forgot, I cut off uh, when I copied it where I got it from. But anyways, um, this is a big reason why we're going to see higher oil prices, right? The gap in between OPEC Plus's ability to ramp up their mandated increase framework will start becoming very significant soon, reaching up to 2 million barrels a day by the end of summer. So here is the, um, what they've been trying to produce. This is the mandated 400,000 barrels per day increases, right? That we were talking about every month they were gonna raise production uh, supply by 400,000 barrels per day. And you see that since August, they haven't met it. And you see that it becomes at the current trend on the forecast, uh, the call on OPEC keeps increasing, uh, yet the forecast is there could be up to a 2 million barrel per day um, deficit. And currently, the rest of the world, non-OPEC world, uh, is not in a position to fix this gap. Now, if the price gets high enough, enough capital and drilling will take place. And I suggest to you that, you know, eventually, an, you know, high prices cure high prices. But again, it, it takes more than a year. And this is where our opportunity is, right? Uh, we were buying a lot of these companies, as you well know, at the bottoms of the uh, epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, when there were actual people suggesting that it was the end of oil. Remember, um, we'll never recover this is so wonderful. It's a good side effect of the pandemic. 
oil demands going down. It's never coming back. It's told it was total bollocks. Uh, and now it's being um, exposed. And I, I don't have time to go through all the charts. You can go to stock charts. Look up even at your major oil companies. Don't even get into some of the juniors that we play with. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, CNQ, for an example, is a very, very top line. Oil sands and, and energy producer in Canada is a double since February of this year or of last year. So basically, uh, there's, there's many, many companies like that. And if you want to get in down into the juniors or the mid caps, um, some of them have performed obviously well above that. So we have some situations in the newsletter that uh, their prospects continue to get better and they've got through some news flow. Obviously, they're in a little bit higher risk situations in some cases, but I just, you know, we're going to be very excited to hear Q4 earnings reports from these oil companies over the next, you know, six to eight weeks as they start coming out with the Q4 and end of year, just the tsunami of cash flow that will be coming. Um, there's already been some projections by some of the companies about some of the cash flow that they'll be seeing and you know what they have said in the past uh but it, uh, is that um debt reduction obviously is a big deal and then uh, returning capital to shareholders which i've said over and over so it'll be interesting to see the cash flows the amount of cash and then what the particular managements decide to do and I think then we may be in the books for later in the year to be looking at some mergers and acquisition to throw some additional gasoline on the fire. So very good year last year, very excited for this year. And uh, there's still room to move here. Now, this is where I think big opportunity exists, which still has not been taken fully advantage of. And if you have been, you felt like you got shut out on some of the oil and gas producers, you know, oil field service stocks really represent a tremendous opportunity here. Um, basically, this chart is a scatter plot chart showing you basically comparing the price of WTI to the OIH, which is the S&P Spiders Oil Field Services Index. And this is a 20-year situation. I don't know if it's monthly or what, but anyway, basically, you can take the price of crude and juxtapose it with the index, the OIH index stock price over here. And you see typically uh, in the past, at least for the last 20 years, what we have seen is that as the oil price increases, we typically see the OIH go up. That makes sense, why? Well, as the oil price goes up, companies do what? They respond to that incentive price by committing more capital to drilling, completions, production, and that's requiring oil field services. So this makes perfect logical sense. But what we've seen, what I want to point out to you is that this chart here or this line here and these scatter plots are the 2022 present trend, okay? And what we're seeing is a complete underperformance in the OIH relative to the increase in crude prices. As we've said, you know, we're pushing 80. I mean, when this chart was, uh, when I uh, got this chart was earlier, maybe a week ago, um, we were below 80 WTI. We're above that today, I believe. We're definitely like an 81 Brent, but you know, you should be at an OIH of around 700 and we're down, you know, at 200 or something like that. And what I'm telling you is this, this is mean reversion. You have an opportunity to see this closed. 
Um, it's something I just have been reviewing some of the stocks in the portfolio. If you become a port, if you become an, an actionable intelligence alert newsletter subscriber, uh, just to point out some of the benefits, something I've been doing to help out the subscribers, especially the newer ones. I mean, you come in and there's a big, you know, current portfolio. It's like, where do I start? What, what should I buy? And so it becomes overwhelming for many people. So what I have done is I've started doing short videos, 15, 20 minute videos on individual companies about what their prospects are, uh, where in the cycle they are, whether or not I would put new money into them and why, and doing a more of an in-depth review of them. And I think that's a lot of people have found that helpful. And, I, and as I've been touching on these on these uh, oil field services stocks, um, they really do, they have, they're, they're lagging. And I suspect that if the 20 year, I, I believe that this will reassert itself, that this norm will reassert itself and that we will see this gap close over the next year. We're already seeing as I begin reviewing these stocks and looking at the uh, transcripts and reading what the managements have been saying over the last couple of quarters, their businesses are recovering. It's not gangbusters, but as I pointed out in a previous week's video, maybe a week or two ago, you know, we saw positive growth in oil field spending. Uh, 9% is estimated in 2021. And JP Morgan was saying that they are forecasting a 13% rise in spending this year. So we're beginning to see that trickle through. As I'm going to show you, drilling is already increasing around the world. You know, you get to $80. It's some of these companies can drill and complete wells and produce these wells at $30, $40 a barrel. They're going to start producing. Uh, will it be enough to close the gap? I don't know. We'll see. But you're already seeing activity picking up. And this, you don't want to wait until it's the front page news on the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, then this move will be over. This is the time to be taking positions in these companies now, if you in fact think these price levels with oil stay here or move higher, which that's my view. So I've, I've been putting new money into a lot of these oil field services stocks that really haven't moved. They're starting to get some traction under them, starting to get some volume. But I suspect, you know, we'll have to take a look at a lot of the Q4 uh, responses. Now, obviously, a lot of times Q4 is a big quarter for many of these companies because a lot of the oil companies will have allocated spending for the year and they'll try to, if they haven't spent their budget, they'll try to jab it into Q4. And typically Q1 and Q2 are not as strong, but we want to see year over year comparisons. That's what we're interested in seeing. And the commentary from the managements, if they're seeing increased activity or increased, you know, inquiries and interest. But I think this is a tremendous chart that screams by oil field services. Just wanted to point this out. This is a press release, I think, or something that came out from uh, Precision Drilling, I think, or Globe and Mail, um, that the pandemic has created something of a perfect storm in energy. Um, reports that Can uh, Canadian Association of Energy Contractors said his members are already experiencing significant worker shortages because of rising case counts for the uh, new variant. Uh, but, you know, I already reported from some folks that, uh, you know, it's one of the good things about a lot of you listeners out there, you're in the oil patch, you're in agriculture, you're in mining, and you email me uh, boots on the ground information. So we were already hearing about challenges in staffing uh, because, you know, after a big bust, I mean, we had the biggest oil field bust probably in the history of the industry for 100 years. 
you know, so people leave the business and they're like not sitting on the couch waiting to get called back. They go out and start doing other things, right? They get into renewable energy or whatever they get into, start their own business, start driving a truck, whatever. And some of these guys will come back if they throw enough money at them. But some guys just said, I've had it. I'm not coming back. And then you throw this pandemic on it is the, uh, you know, the challenge of managing through this and on top of it, the already shortages. I mean, they say here, if you have one individual that tests positive, it's not going to be an isolated incident, which it should be. You should just send the guy home. We're at, this thing's a head cold now. But regardless, it's likely going to impact several of the crew members. This is going to be a very frustrating period within the industry, just trying to manage operations and keep staff healthy. So yeah, okay, people are getting sick. It's the flu and cold season. And, you know, but I want to bring to your attention that there is staffing issues. There's not only just staffing issues, there's going to be equipment issues. A lot of the equipment has been sitting in yards with no maintenance. Um, there's going to be a tendency to bring back and push the crews as far as you can before you have to go out and buy new equipment. You're going to see a lot of green hands out there. That's going to affect things. We already reported anecdotally that uh, at least in West Texas, Tenaris, who was one of the big drill pipe manufacturers, we had a report that uh, they were already sold out for this year of all their pipe. So I think equipment shortages, uh, equipment maintenance, staffing issues, uh, these will be hurdles that um, will challenge the ability of operators to uh, just go out and, and, and raise production. Now, these things can be overcome. If you have enough money and time, anything can be done. But again, it takes time. You don't just flip a switch and go back to, you know, boom times. And there will be a hesitancy by banks to finance a lot of this, not just because of the fact that they got burned many times, but that you're seeing ESG mandates come down from government and central banks and regulators on the banks telling them not to, you know, issue loans for uh, hydrocarbon development. We've already seen that. So um, we'll have to see how all these things interplay. It's just, you know, more hurdles in the ability of operators and contractors to get out and do what they need to do. So um, another thing to keep, keep an eye on. So again, talking about high prices stimulate more drilling. This is the cumulative horizontal meters license in Alberta and Saskatchewan. You can see already um, to, to 2020, we're 10.4 million meters. Um, you know, in 2021, we're double that, right? So the high prices uh, began stimulating more um, drilling. That's obvious, right? High prices cure high prices. Uh, so we'll have to see, you know, uh, this is a pretty big jump, but that's just one, um, one locale. We'll see if that starts translating to more uh, oil, oil field areas around the world. But this is, uh, this is pretty significant. This is why we like a lot of the juniors in Canada because you have an expanding production profile in a rising oil environment. Some of these things are killing it up there uh, with their production increases, uh, which is gonna translate to even bigger cash flows. And I think uh, a merger mania that's probably gonna maybe be kickoff later on this year which like I said, will throw gasoline on the fire. So again, you know, EOG is one of the biggest um, Permian operators, shale oil operators in the US. Uh, one of the better ones, probably the best one in my view. 
Um, they've always kind of made money or had positive cash flow. So what are they saying? Um, they're saying that they're ready to begin drilling again. I mean, we knew, we talked about this, right? We had this period of time where shareholders were demanding returns. They hadn't seen any returns from all this drilling and all this activity for the last 10 years. They were demanding uh, that the management's, you know, take this windfall of cash and return it to, to them via buybacks and dividends, which they have been doing. But we're starting to see cracks in that particular narrative now. Uh, EOG Resources, one of the largest operators in the U.S. shale patch, has signaled it would be willing to boost oil production if there is demand for it. Quote, EOG would be in a position to return to pre-COVID levels of production. Uh, the CEO said, if the world has a call on oil and there's room to grow our low cost, low emissions barrels into the market, we can certainly deliver on that. Well, they will. I mean, if they're gonna look at the numbers obviously and make the decisions based on that. But I think you're gonna see the narrative shift. This is why I'm also becoming more bullish on oil field services. Um, they're gonna start squeezing in more production. They're gonna to wanna to start increasing production, replacing production, doing new drilling. Uh, Last blurb here, U.S. oil producers, especially those in the shale patch, have been focusing on shareholder returns amid the pandemic after years of plowing billions into higher, higher production, only to see it slump as the lockdowns began last year. So we went from drill, baby, drill and making no money to a period during the pandemic over the last two years, 18 months, what have you, of focusing on um, shareholder returns and now they can't help themselves right we're getting to $80 a barrel and people are getting antsy they want to start drilling again so another thing we need to watch it's inevitable high prices cure high prices we know that you know of, but the question is is how much new drilling where by who and will it make a difference in the you know medium to long term well, it remains to be seen I just think this is interesting to show you that economics does work right price does signal and people do respond to incentives. So I think it's interesting to uh, discuss these things. So another thing that I wanted to talk about, um, we talked earlier in the summer, if you recall, about the slowdown in the Chinese credit impulse and how it may uh, have an effect on lower commodity prices. In the past, it has. We saw the collapse in the credit impulse in China, but we didn't see a really big pullback in commodity prices. That tells you one or two things possibly. One, there really is a lot of supply constraint out there, which we were aware of because we saw China and some other countries, even the US, you know, release oil reserves into the market, release China at least pouring a bunch of their metal uh, stocks that they had built up into the market to try to slow down the price increases. But we didn't see the big pullback uh, in a lot of the metals and in, and in oil. I mean, the little SPR coordinated thing that happened four or five weeks ago by the Biden administration was basically a fart in the wind. It's already dissipated and we're back up to the $80 a barrel again. And now that bullet's been fired. So what do you do now? You know, so what I'm getting at is, is that it looks like the Chinese may be starting another credit impulse because uh, some of the things have been happening there with their economy. And if that's the case, and they're going to go on a reflation, and if they're going to go on a credit, uh, re start injecting credit into their economy and their system, what does that mean for commodity prices going forward with the lag, obviously? So 
This is the article, it's translated from Chinese. I'll put a link to it. You can use Google Translate if you want to read the article. Entering 2022, various banks are actively preparing for a quote, good start for credit. Many industry insiders predict that new credit in the first quarter of this year is expected to achieve year-on-year -year growth. And the scale of commercial bank credit will maintain steady growth throughout the year. Yeah, so it's the beginning of a new credit impulse. Remember, everything comes down from on high from the CCP upper leadership. Green finance and quote, specialized, special new, unquote, enterprises will be the key areas of credit investment. It is expected that credit investment at the beginning of the year will be significantly boosted and the overall structure will be improved compared to the previous year, unquote. Many experts predict that the new credit, that the new credit for the whole year of 2022 will be slightly higher than that of 2021. East Asia securities analyst Wang Gang said that under the re resonance of factors such as the release of long-term funds and the reserve cut, and the acceleration of capital replenishment, the expansion and growth of commercial bank credit scale in 2022 can be expected. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that we were at risk of the commodity and resource sector pricing of raw materials to get really slammed based on the fact that China was had negative credit growth last year, which was substantial. And that previous episodes of that, we showed several charts of that, had caused big pullbacks in commodity prices. We simply just did not see it last year. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have to see what happens this year. But if this holds true, that there were at the beginning of another upcycle in credit in China, then, I mean, where does copper go? At, you know, it's 430, 440, 420 a pound, whatever it is. Do we see five, $6 a pound? And what this further indicates to me is that we really do have supply constraints. There's not, the material is not out there because of the years of underinvestment, not just in oil and gas, but in mining in general. So I think this is significant. This is something to watch. And if the Chinese, you know, go into another credit uh, binge and upcycle, previous episodes have shown that that, you know, leads, you know, they're the largest consumer of commodities in the world, but they're not the only ones, right? Uh, I like to show these little tidbits when I find them. Here's India highway construction and it's accelerating. So it's a faster infrastructure development in India. So here is uh, 2019 to 2014 and 2014 to 2021. This is the, the uh, average annual um, construction of highways and kilometers. Uh, and you see how it grew throughout the, from this five-year period to this, this period. And then you see that uh, we're, we're, going, we're gonna exceed that from 20 to 21 exceed the previous uh, average and now uh, 20 to 21 actual. I mean, so this is accelerating. And what does that mean? Well, you don't build highways and roads if you're not gonna put vehicles on them. What does that mean for oil demand? What does that mean for goods demand? I mean, so what I'm trying to explain to you is that we're at record speed and road, road construction in India, 37 kilometers per day on average. And they're just at the beginning. They're, they're basically at where China was in 1990, right? And some of their consumption trends. So obviously India is a democracy. It's not a top-down political situation like the CCP in China. So the government from on high in India can't dictate to all the individual states there what to do. But the same socioeconomic catalysts are in place, right? Uh, people moving from the... Um, countryside to the cities, industrialization, urbanization, infrastructure spending to support that, 
will be tremendous over the next 10 years. I'm very bullish on India. As a matter of fact, one of the holdings in the portfolio is a way to take advantage of that by not buying directly Indian stocks, but through a uh, investment firm that gives us exposure to deals, private equity deals in India and is significantly undervalued to net asset value. So I'm very bullish on India long-term and I, I, in a lot of places, I mean, Indonesia, nobody talks about these places. They have hundreds of millions of people or tens of millions of people doing the same thing. No one talks about Africa, a billion people. These places are going to see their demand for raw materials and energy increase over time. It's just going to happen. And if we're already undersupplied, what does that mean for prices? If it's more difficult to find these things, these metals and this oil, what does that mean? You know, so for pricing. So I think we are in a decade bull market. It will be bumpy, as I've said before, it will be volatility. There will be times we see pullbacks. As you saw in the uranium stocks, they pulled back over 50%, but nothing fundamentally has changed there. You buy on the dips in a bull market. So um, I, I like to find these little anecdotal things. Obviously, uh, this just, you know, try not to use confirmation bias. There's a lot of challenges out there in the world too. I mean, we'll just have to see. We, you know, inflation is a problem and these central banks are beginning to tighten around the world. It's not just in the US. So that could be a headwind. We'll have to watch it. But uh, typically in the past, a lot of the central banks have, especially in the US, have a tendency to be well behind the curve. So um, it's just going to see how it plays out over time. And we will see uh, uh, what has to be nimble. We, we have indicators that we look at, uh, leading indicators and things of this nature that hopefully will give us some guidance. And uh, if we need to pull back on our allocations. All right, guys, that's it for this week. I uh, hope you liked it. Um, if you are interested, you know, take a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. We're doing very good in there, I believe, with a lot of our picks. Uh, a lot of things that we talk about here are reflected in the portfolio, give you an opportunity to take advantage of that. Um, the other thing is, is if you are a subscriber there, as I mentioned, uh, I do do the specific videos on the companies, try to keep people acquainted. A lot of people were complaining, but you know we respond to our customers. We have a dedicated Discord channel for subscribers, which is very active. A lot of good ideas and questions are answered there. So you have access to that as a subscriber also. So a lot of perks a lot of good information. Uh, we try to take care of subscribers. You know, we're not right all the time, but uh, we try to uh, course correct when we get off course. And uh, we had a very good year last year. Some people, a lot of people outperformed us, but we outperformed quite a few people. So um, if you're interested in that, feel free to take a subscription. If you're not, if you enjoy these videos, you know, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to be, you know, out front there, you know, like the videos, comment on the videos, please subscribe to the channel. It helps grow the channel. It helps get the word out. Um, do me that favor if, uh, you know, if, if you're inclined. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Talk to you next week.